Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. We're so happy you're here. Thank you so much for coming out on such a busy, busy week. Hi. Hello. Welcome. I see some people have been here for like every event, which is amazing, you guys. Thank you so much. (laughs) Tonight, we are so happy to welcome Lizzie Petit. So we have Lizzie tonight, originally from Nashville, Tennessee. Lizzie Poteet is an agent at the Seymour Agency after several years at St. Martin's Press in McMillan, a hopeless romantic. She's eternally grateful she found a way to channel her immense feelings about legitimate job where swooning is considered a job skill. A spitfire from early age, she once tried to write a series of book reports in high school on Nora Roberts, Linda Howard, and Julie Garwood. It did not go well. It did not go over well. Lizzie's addiction to romance only grew from there, which explains why she decided to study abroad at the University of St. Andrews in college. Just off chance, she would fall back in time to meet her own warrior, soulmate, and sadly she didn't, and now lives in Nashville with her dogs, Mr. Darcy and Miss Dashwood, where she watches a lot of television. Uh, Lizzie's looking for romance, women's fiction, female-driven, coming-of-age stories, college romances, Humorous religion nonfiction, romantic, romantic suspense, historical romance, and inspirational romance. And you can find her on Twitter at Lizzie Poti. Yay, welcome, welcome Lizzie. Lizzie. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I, I really like happy endings. I don't like sad things. Life is sad enough. <laughs> Dare I ask what happened when you did a report on Nora Roberts in, in high school? <gasps> so I went to a religious high school. I guess I should preface. <laughs> That by saying I went to not just a religious high school, but an evangelical high school. So it didn't, didn't go down well. I think it was the first time I maybe had like to talk to the principal about some of my sinful, sinful side hobbies. <laughs> um, it was the reaction I got when I was like, here, let me tell you about Nora Roberts. I was like, ah, oh, no. the devil is among us. <laughs> So yeah, I think it was the first time I I got a B, but they let me write the paper on someone more godly. So (laughs) well, I'm really glad that it worked out. Okay, so just a few things about how tonight's going to work. We'll start off the conversation with some of our top questions. If you have anything you'd like to ask, please put it in the text chat. So you can click the chat icon. It looks like a conversation bubble at the bottom of your screen. Type it in, hit enter. And when we have an appropriate moment to pause and it fits into the flow of conversation, we'll call on you to unmute and join the conversation. Yay. So Lizzie, I believe I met you when you were an editor at St. Martin's. Can you tell us how you got started there and how you knew you wanted to make make the switch to agenting? Yeah. So I think we first met when I was a baby editor at St. Martin's, editorial assistant with stars in my eyes. So I actually was not one of those blessed people who knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. There was like a, a brief period as an adolescent where I was convinced I was going to own a McDonald's franchise. And that was, that was my passion for, I would say, probably three summers in elementary school. Um, and then after that, I just kind of didn't really feel like I 
knew my, my path. So when I was in college, I had a teacher who was like, Hey, you should go into publishing. I was like, okay. My goal was to go to divinity school and like maybe become like a pastor. And she was like, you know, you should, you should go into publishing. I was like, you know what? Divinity school wants me to learn ancient Hebrew. And that feels like a lot. So maybe I should go into publishing. So I didn't have like a lot of internships. I didn't have any resume. I just moved to New York for a month and applied for jobs. And I kept hearing, hey, you're, you're too editorial, which at the time I didn't know what that meant because I wanted to be a publicist because I thought editorial would be um, stressful. Like mm-hmm. you have the lives of these books in your hands. I just didn't want that stress. I just wanted to like get free books and like have some fun. And everyone's like, no, you're not meant for publicity. You're too editorial, too editorial. It's like, I don't, wow. I don't know what you're talking about. So eventually I, I got an editorial job, which is where I met lovely Jessica. And it was great. I, I, I loved my time at St. Martin's Press. I made some of my best friends. I made some of my mortal enemies. Um, <laughs> I got to meet, meet some great authors. And it was just a great learning experience. But ultimately, editorial is very, you're very structured by what your house represents and what your house is taking on. And I had interests that lay beyond just the imprint I was in. And ultimately I looked at my life. I looked at my 600 square foot apartment that I was sharing with somebody else. I looked at like how far away I was from my family. I looked at what I liked about my job and what I didn't like about my job. And I realized that with agenting, I would be able to have more autonomy and be able to take on people who I was passionate about, not just because the house thought it would be a good investment. And plus I could have a yard and a a house and be in the Nashville where my family is. So I ultimately was like, you know what? Editorial, fantastic. But agenting gives me a sense of freedom that I didn't have when I was with St. Martin's Press. So made the move. Congratulations. You did it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I still sometimes think about owning a McDonald's franchise, but that's just a a pipe dream. (laughs) I mean, I really miss fries. Like (laughs) I really, really miss getting takeout and going places with fries. And like, do you remember that place that used to have 200 dipping sauces? Yes. And it burned down. Yeah, I know. It was so (laughs) sad on so many levels. Yeah. But like, I still think about that, the bouquets of fries and the 200 Mm -hmm. dipping sauces. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I I see why you had that interest and why it stayed. Yeah. I also had like one of those Fisher Price toy, like my size toy things where you popped it open and it became a drive-through window. Oh, that's so cute. And I think uh, I mostly just liked bossing people around as (laughs) franchise owner. I made all of my friends be franchise employees. So that was probably more of a control freak thing than anything. I like it. Can you tell us one of the things that we're hearing a lot about lately is that you know, publishing is hard right now. What What is it in your opinion? How do you see things? I feel like publishing is always hard. It's kind of the little engine that could in many ways. It's not a huge growth industry. I mean, it really isn't. We wish it was a huge growth industry, but a lot of times, like, you, you have big authors, but at the same time, a lot of your, like, bread and butter, your core roster of people, they're... They're making some money, but it's been very, very hard, I think, with the changing technologies to change with them. 
And so I think when people say it's hard in publishing, I, I want to ask, like, when was it easy? When was it easy in publishing? Well, I hear that in the 90s, you could get a job without any internships. You could just go straight out of college, get a full paid assistant position. The food was better, I heard then. Everyone was going to lunch every single day of the week and having long, luxurious lunches. So even if the salary was terrible, at least, you know, at lunch, you could stock up on all the food that you need for a little while. And I mean, even pre-2008, I remember the food being excellent and, you know, practically doing that thing where the Fig Newton lady takes the Fig Newtons and puts them in her purse. You could get by on that kind of. And I think that those perks, it, it changed how it felt to be in the industry without those perks. I think those perks kind of went away, but I also feel like there's a trade-off because publishing back in the 90s, the 80s, 70s, the 60s, the 50s was very nepotistic mm-hmm. and it was a hobby job. So you were a wealthy person who had, oh, some some time on their hands. So you went into books. I, I feel like there was a classism to publishing in the past that has been slowly being torn down and it's become a more inclusive and diverse place where it's not just everybody is a New Yorker who comes from a certain privileged background. Because I mean, yeah, you could walk off the street and get a job, but most of the time you knew somebody who worked in publishing because they were a dad's connection. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it shifted being a primarily male dominated industry to a primarily female dominated industry. And now we're actually seeing more diverse people in terms of where they're coming from and the different voices they're bringing. So a story I'd heard about that was that it was mostly male-dominated until the 70s when suddenly romance was making so much money and they realized women were the ones who bought it, so maybe they should hire some women to choose it. Is that the story that you'd heard as well? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, with the era of Fabio, uh, (laughs) I think romance really had a, a strong boom and it's still a powerhouse in terms of sales numbers. I mean... No offense, but like there are very few male romance writers. And I think it's because a lot of readers are female in the romance world and they're looking for that strong feminine point of view that they can relate to. And it's very hard for male authors to capture the ebb and the flow and the checkpoints that you need to get in romance. Oh, there's some wonderful male-male romance, of course. There are oh, a lot of, of course. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of options out there. I just thought that was such an interesting way of describing why the industry had changed in that way. And I'm glad that we're continuing to make progress toward being an industry where it's not just be fancy and show up with your trust fund. Does anyone have a question that they have for Lizzie? So I have had a quick question. So I know that, for instance, romance can trend to be lower for word count. And I wasn't sure if on the same lines for like a young adult contemporary, from what I read was that it could go anywhere between like 50 to maybe like 80-ish. And I know that I had also read that things are starting to trend higher again. And I wasn't sure if, if you saw something come into your inbox and it was like maybe a young adult romance contemporary, would you feel weird if it was like, 55 because it's on that lower end. It's like, ooh, I don't know if there's enough to your plot. I wasn't sure if you guys had a, any feel for that. If it's like, I actually have a flag in my query manager that if it's 40,000 words or under, it automatically flags it for me to let me know. Just because typically I do feel like 
when you get 40,000, 45,000 words, they tend to feel a little underdeveloped in the romance world. Um, and in the YA world, I just, I, the YA plots we're seeing a lot of, a lot nowadays are very rich and very well-developed. And it's hard to do that in 45,000 words. I think when you get over 50,000 words and you get closer to 6,000 words, you're getting into a safer zone. You also have to think about what 50,000 words would look like in book form um, in terms of trim size and how it would be, how big that book would be. And it's sometimes, sometimes you just kind of, you see 45,000 words, 55,000 words. And as an agent, my mind goes to, I wonder if it's actually ready for me to see it yet. I wonder if it's been through the full process, whether it's been read by critique partners, whether it's been gone through the beta process, just because a lot of times when I see things on the lower end, it's people who are prematurely submitting to me. Great. Uh, Lynn, do you want to ask your question? It sounds like editing is a strength. Can you talk about how agents edit with their authors? Well, it's individual based on the agent. There are some agents who do a very light edit and they prefer to take on clients who are already at a certain level of polish. Then there are some edit or agents who do heavy edits and they basically want to get your book as tip-top shape as possible. And then they're the people who fall in between. Personally, I can't not edit. When I have something in my inbox, if I see a way to make it better, I can't in like let it go enough to send it to a publishing house without at least doing a little bit. So with all of my authors, I do do a first developmental edit where we go through the characters, we go through the plot, we go through the different points, the big like climax, the first kiss, the meet cute. If it's a nonfiction, we go through the proposal pages. If it's a women's fiction, we look at the complexity of the characters and the relationship. If it's a mystery, we make sure there's actually some suspense there. And we work on the actual storytelling. And then after they do those revisions, I go back and I do do a pretty, I would say it's a pretty moderate line edit where I make sure the dialogue is flowing, make sure the pacing's good, where I make sure the syntax is where it needs to be, the word choice is correct, nothing's awkward or weird. And I primarily focus on the first three chapters, the climax of the book, and then the final chapters, just because I feel like my job is not the editor. My job is to get it to a point where the editor sees its potential. And by focusing strategically, I'm able to get the first and the last in like really good shape so that they have a good first impression and then a good last impression. I'm kind of thinking of it like a cake all of a sudden, like, you Mm -hmm. know, you need it to stand up. You need it to taste good and you need it to have like enough frosting that nothing bad's going to happen to it. But you're not going to put the rosettes on it. You're not going to put the candles on it. You're going to let the editor decide if it's going to say happy birthday or congratulations or happy anniversary. I think sometimes you can leave some of the finishing touches to the editor because they are going to have a vision too. The house is going to have a vision. I mean, I imagine when you were in editorial meetings, they're like, we like it, but change this thing. So I guess we just need to prove that it's a cake that's not going to poison you and it's a pleasant cake and they can add the last little bit of decoration to the top. Or like a house. You want to get it to the 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 stage where when they walk in, it's staged just enough that they could see how they would move into it. Mm -hmm. And then 
it's up to them to kind of make it the home that they want it to be. My job is to take things that are sometimes maybe not the most up-to-date, maybe not the most fancy or polished. And if the bones are good, get it to a point where it's like, okay, I can see the potential in this. And I could see this really being something that my family would love or my readership would love. So um, I, I do have to pull myself back. Sometimes I want to edit the whole damn thing, but I just... <laughs> it's not a good time management skill. So yeah, so what is it that like jumps out at you in the first few pages of a manuscript that makes you want to keep reading and ask for more? Like what what do you typically find structure-wise that really just reaches out and grabs you? I like a strong opening scene. I like a scene that has action, that has personality, that has voice, that isn't just a summary of who the character is, what the backstory is, where the character is. I like a first line that has a snap, a little pizzazz to it, where the first line isn't just like, it was a rainy Wednesday afternoon. That would be fine, but it was something more engaging of, it was the rain. It was a rainy Wednesday afternoon, the day the world turned upside down, would be a little bit more evocative to me. And then with the rest of the first page, I like to see the character come to life. I want to hear their voice. I want to have a strong tone and a perspective. Um, a lot of first pages I see feel almost like they're a continuation of the synopsis or a summary. And that's not showing me what your character is or what you're writing. The number one thing that I wish more people did was focus on their first page and see if like, if they gave it blindly to a group of 20 people, who would keep reading after that first page? Very cool. Sita, do you have a question? So my, my question is as a writer, and, and I'm new to this career here, or this career change. So as a writer, finding is finding an agent... Are you, or in finding an agent, are you looking for a one-book relationship or a career-long relationship? Um, I think that question really does depend on the agent and what you're writing. If you're writing nonfiction and this is the book you have been working towards since you graduated high school and this is the story you have been building your reputation around and building a platform for, then some people are one-book people. They have a strong platform in a specific area and they're, they want to tell that story. But in fiction, I think typically I'm looking for an author I can grow with whose career I can be part of. The first book does matter. It needs to be something that I can connect to and that I can relate to and that I can see the marketability for. But the more important thing is it needs to be some attached to someone who has ideas for where they want to go with their career and has a vision for what they want their career to look like. So when, before I take on any clients, I always get on the phone call and I do talk to them about, okay, so you wrote this book. What other ideas do you have? Where else do you want to go? What is your game plan? How long did it take you to write this one? Have you written anything else? Just because I think it is important that Ideally, you and your agent are going to be in a partnership for the entirety of your career, and you want to be on the same page. So having an agent who believes in you beyond just the one book in their inbox, I think is very important. Thank you. Yeah. 
Julie, is that pretty much what you expected? Everyone, is that pretty much what you expected? Yes, no, panic? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's interesting, you know, I, I always appreciate when we have an agent that comes on and talks about how we run things here. And we spend so much time at the Manuscript Academy dealing with queries and first pages in that submission package and how, you know, that first page, and that first 10 pages is so important. But just to hear that reaffirmed, you know, and and, and honestly, to hear that, you know, when Lizzie says, I really want to help the Asian, I mean, the, the writer get to that next level, right? So, so like, I think we, we hear about in like the Facebook group or whatever, like, does it need to be perfect? And everyone says, yes, but the answer really is, it needs to be perfect enough to get li- a person like Lizzie engaged so Lizzie can help you get to that next level, if that makes sense. Do you feel that way, Lizzie? Like, it's just about getting to that a certain level once you get, they get there, you don't want, I mean, and Lizzie, can, uh, maybe this is the question. How do you feel about when agents are like an Aquarius letter saying I've had a full, full editorial? I guess there's several problems to this question, actually. So the first thing is you're asking how polished do I need a manuscript to be? And I think you have a leg up in the sense that you're already working on polishing your manuscript. I get a lot of people who type the end and then they send it to me and they've never even read it before. So just some level of polish I think is important. And then I think it is also important to have an author who is willing to do the work. So an author who can see, uh, who can hear what I'm saying about something and then be willing to make some changes. It's very hard to say this because your work is your baby and you've put so much time and so much energy into it. But there's still more that you can do to make it better. And the willingness to do that and the willingness to listen is a, is really an important trait to have, to be able to let go of your vision and embrace somebody else's vision and trust that they know what they're talking about. If you're not in a position where you can get a email back from an agent being like, I think there's a lot that's great about this, but I think there's some work that can be done. And you're like, no, I don't want to do any work then you need to indie publish. Like that's like the full sign that you're, you're going to be an indie author. And then when people send things into me and they're like, I've already had this professionally edited. Part of me thinks that's good, but you do know that I'm going to also want to edit it. And your editor's also going to want to edit it. So I'm not saying don't have it edited and don't do revisions, but it's not always the next step if that makes sense. Like throwing your money to have someone developmental edit it can work if you're stuck, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for every writer who's wanting to get their book polished and into my hands. And that's a big reason why we focus on the beginning pages here too. I think that's the best deal for everyone to really focus on those parts and then you know, try your best to get that ready. Because when you send out your submission package, it's not, hi, nice to meet you. Send your query and the first, you know, however many hundreds of pages that it is. I think that's probably the most important part as you as you had mentioned. And I, I also think it's interesting that when you do get like a 10 page or, you know, a 50 page or whatever it is, you can also follow the lines with, you know, the, the, the things that come up. It's really, the, the whole thing is really interesting, right? It's like, Getting it to like Lizzie, you and Jessica. So like just going back on that, I'm just going to piggyback on a question here. What prompts you to ask for a partial and what prompts you to ask for a full? 
Uh, a lot of it's intuition. It's not something that's easily defined or very tangible. I can tell you what is going to prompt me not to request anything. Yeah. That would be someone who didn't put any effort into their query, didn't didn't even just seem to know what my name was, didn't treat the query letter as a letter, um, didn't include a synopsis when I asked for a synopsis, is writing something that I definitely do not represent, like screenwriting. I get a lot of screenwriting submissions and I don't represent screenwriting. So those are obvious definite no's. Um, So like the definite no's tend to be ones that are just kind of clear cut. People who just kind of lazily did it. After that, my next stage is I request a partial. And for the people I request partials from, those tend to be stories where there's a hint of something in them that I like, but there's also a flag of some sort that it's maybe not going to be right for me. So if the word count is too low, if the plot doesn't have a strong high concept, if the sample pages were a little more, um, if the sample pages were fine, but they weren't the most engaging, those are when I usually request a partial. I see something in this. I think there could be something worth my time, but I'm not quite sold yet. And then I request a full if I see something that just really excites me. If you've done your research, if you can tell me why this book is going to be right for me in your query letter, um, not just right for a romance editor or right for a women's fiction editor, but right for Lizzie Poteet, that helps. I also, if the first few pages have a strong, propulsive, compulsive voice, I'm going to want to keep reading more. And the more I want to keep reading more by the end of those sample pages, the more I'm going to ask for a full submission. Nice. We have a question that I'm curious about because it's a situation I've never run into, but I'm sure people do. I just wanted to know, do you ever take on an author and get to a point where you realize the story isn't working or there's just something that isn't going right as you initially thought it would? Yes, there have been times. And I think I learned from each one. There have been times where I think an author and I are on the same page in terms of what the timeline we want to be, how much editorial development the story needs, and what direction the story needs to go. And then sometimes we'll get to a point where it's clear that our visions for the story don't match up. Um, And so with each, it doesn't match up. You kind of learn a lesson of either you have to like just let the author do their thing. if you trust they know what they're doing and you've done your best with one author. I was like, you know what? She's, this is what she's going to write. We'll go out with it. Um, With another author, it ended up with us parting ways just because we diverged so much that we couldn't come to an agreement on where the story needed to go. Um, And I do think with experiences like those agents tend to, they tend to handle them different ways. I personally, now when I do a call with an uh, author before I take them on, I tend to like to specifically ask them, what do you think about this editorial idea? What direction do you want to go with this story? How would you feel about like after this book doing a mystery about dog vampires or something? (laughs) And they'll be like, um, I agree with that. Don't agree with this. Think that's a crazy idea. And so just kind of making sure you're on the same page from the get-go is very helpful. But it's like, it's not my book, so I can't force someone to do something. But I do have 
over 10 years of experience in the field. And it kind of, it comes down to, you need to have that trust. Yeah. And I think we're talking about the hard side of editorial. There's also a time when it's just such a pleasure. I was on the phone with an author I'd offered rep to about two weeks ago and she accepted. And at the time I'd given her a short list of, you know, things that had to change. And so when we got on the call for the first time, we were talking about, okay, how are we going to address these things that we brought up? And it was so much fun. And, you know, she got off the call and we were like giggling to each other about, yeah, this could happen. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Cause then this other thing would happen and that'd make this other thing true. And it was, I mean, we know that that's a possibility too. It's not always like a serious, high stakes, terrifying thing. And we got off the call and she's like, I can't wait to start writing. And I'm like, I can't wait to read it. So, you know, that's possible too. It is scary when you don't know if like the vision in your head is going to match the vision in their head, kind of like in the cartoons where each character has a thought bubble and one's describing one thing and you can see they're thinking about completely different things, but they're like, yes, I get it. Absolutely. You don't always know, but you know, it, it, it can be such a pleasure when it works out that way. Yeah. And I think having a conversation with anybody who you're interested in signing up with and signing on with, it's never a bad idea to be upfront and be like, Hey, you know, I see this story as a standalone. I want my next story t- series to be about cats who can knit. And it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, let's talk about that. I had, I just signed someone last month and we got, I, we got off the phone. I offered her rep. She, she signed on. She sent me her manuscript. I dived in. I sent her my notes and she was like, oh my God, I now see what you're saying. Like this opens up a world of possibilities. And it's like, that's the kind of relationship I think every agent wants. Um, it And if your vision and their vision isn't maybe sim- sympathetic, I do think that ultimately you have power in any agent author scenario too. You don't have to sign with an agent who doesn't understand where you want to go. In fact, you shouldn't. It's just going to be pain. I know so many people think, oh my God, this agent wants me. This could be my one shot. But if you're not happy with them, then is that a shot that you're really needing to take? I just can't imagine that working out well. I mean, I think you'd just fight about it for a while until one of you gives up. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> or like, till you cry a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't think you should ever cry because of someone who's supposed to be your advocate. No, I mean, if you if you are feeling bad about any relationship in your life consistently, I think that's a, a problem. So yeah, like any relationship in your life, you should feel good about your relationship with your agent. You shouldn't like have fear struck into your heart whenever you see their name in your inbox or something like that. You should be comfortable reaching out to them. They should be somebody who, you know, yeah, maybe they're one of the agents who are a little bit more serious and you're slightly afraid of calling them by their first name or something. Like, okay, fine. You know, that could be an old school way of going about things. But like, yeah, in general, you should feel good about them, I think. Yeah, and that they have your back. Like, even if they're terrifying, they should have your back. <laughs> they should be terrifying for you, yes. not <laughs> to you. Um, also, the viewer, like the, the listeners, we have so many good questions. In the we chat. have so many good questions. I'm blown away by the questions. I'm curious to get your perspective on how you see it changing in terms of like reader expectations. Because what, what I love about romance is that it does provide an escape in a way, especially today when everything's terrible in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's also a safe space to explore like deeper issues. And some of my favorite books have been ones that explore like deeper issues within that like really safe structure. So I'm curious if you, how you see that balance 
changing in terms of expectations in the market? Um, I think the romance market is one that's always in flux in many ways. For a while, it was all about the Fabios and the 80s romances, which were, in my opinion, a little bit non-consensual. And then we we evolved from that and we got very in-depth stories that do work through hard issues. You have romances with PTSD. You have romances um, where characters are really struggling and trying to find their place in the world. You have romances with heroes and heroines that aren't perfect. And I think back 80s, 90s, before that, romances were about that fantasy of it was all about the guy with the abs and (laughs) the hair and like the eyes and like probably like a sword or something. (laughs) And then like the woman all had like the milky pale skin and the heaving bosoms and they said no, but they really meant yes. And thankfully we got past that because I do think it can still be a fantasy and have a romance with real characters who are finding love. And that's what I'm really loving about the market right now is we're exploring stories about real people and it's still an escapism. I mean, if you've seen the Netflix trailer for uh, Shonda's Shonda Land's new romance adaptation of Julia Quinn's novels, she really brings just a, a delightful fantasy feel to that historical romance series where it's just the pastel colors of what they're wearing, the delicate china cups, but also the frantic energy of the dances and the choreography. And I think that more than anything almost is a visualization of what romance has become. It's a place where you can still have depth, but you also have the ultimate happily ever after where it's going to work out. And so it's always going to be an escape. And that is, I think my favorite thing about the genre is because as much as it changes, the tenet for me for a romance novel is it will have an happily ever after at the end. And it's all the more gratifying when people had to go through something to get Mm -hmm. there. I remember one of the first series I ever bought um, as a baby editorial assistant, the second book featured a hero coming back from war with PTSD, who was an amputee. Mm. And I remember someone asking me, well, are you sure you can do that? And I was like, well, why couldn't I? Like, why couldn't I do this? And I think that was just kind of the, the almost to me, this embodiment of how romance has changed. Because back in the 80s, you, you weren't publishing stories like that. And it's really great to see romance kind of embrace a little bit more of what it means to, to be in love, but also to be a flawed person. There were two really great questions from Amber. Amber, if you've got a moment, you've got one question about more difficult issues and one question about finding other ways to publish your work and get an agent's attention. And I was wondering if you could ask both. Of course. I love questions. But what Lizzie just said kind of brought it full circle about how romance has changed to a more accepting of flawed people. So I guess how, when it comes to people's flaws and things that they didn't do to themselves, but that happened to them, how do you include really, really heavy things, but get an agent that can can accept it? Because I, don't, I sometimes don't want to send my stuff out because I don't want to trigger anyone, but I also 
know that they could read it if they got to the bottom they'd see you know it all come together Mm -hmm. so yeah I think honesty when you're looking to get an agent is very important explain why it's important to you one of my authors she felt very strongly about the next book she want series she wanted to go out with was historical romance set after the war of 1812 in which these heroes were coming back from war in an era that didn't recognize PTSD as PTSD and what it would mean to be a wounded warrior in a society where you were really put to the side. And she was coming from that from a place of she was a former police detective who was wounded in the line of duty. And so for her, this was her story, but told in historical historical context. And she was passionate about it. And that passion just bled through her query. And I was like, I can see why you feel so strongly about this. And if I can see it, I know editors can see it. And so I think that's the main thing is to let them know where you're coming from and why you're telling the story you're telling and what it means to you. I think bringing it back to being a personal thing is always helpful. But also, I think a lot of agents we're just looking for stories that we're going to enjoy. And even if it involves something heavy, I think the ultimate outcome is if there's a light, if there's a learning lesson, if there's this character development where we start in one place and we end in another, then you're going to be crafting a story that how could we put it down? So that's important too, to be able to, to not just deal with the heavy, but also bring some light and shine some positivity and to work through it. It's kind of like writing in many ways is like therapy. You got to work through some issues and then you come out and hopefully you're a more enlightened person on the other end. Yeah. And I think it's so much more gratifying to see someone start in a place that's difficult and end up somewhere great than it is to see someone start out basically perfect, but maybe they like, don't like that they're clumsy or, you know, something. (laughs) And then they end up with the prince, the end. You know, I think it's so much more interesting to see a real character arc that way. And I'm so happy to see that in a lot of modern romance too. Lizzie, what do you think of adding a trigger warning? I've heard of some people appreciating it and some people- And I have one too. Yeah. yeah, I think if you put the TW colon, then people who know what that is will know what that is. And people who don't know what it is will kind of skip over it and it's fine. I guess that's kind of a way to balance it. I don't know. What do you yeah, think, I, I would never lead in a query letter with trigger warning just because I don't necessarily know if the trigger is going to outweigh the interest in the story based on your first like 10 pages. But I wouldn't be hesitant to say like it deals with some. Uh, hard issues, love, loss, betrayal, a woman overcoming the traumas of her past. And as she moves on into a brighter future, honestly, if, for example, if you're going to tell a story about a rape survivor, I feel like that's integral to her character. And instead of saying trigger warning, rape survivor, your query letter for me, I think it'd be much more engaging just for you to say in the query, like Lila, overcame something no woman should ever have to overcome. Like plagued by the nightmares of the night she was abducted off the street. She struggles every day to put her demons in the closet and leave her house. Like if you include that, then you don't really need to have the trigger warning there. But if it's something like self-harm or something a little bit less integral to 
their journey that you wouldn't necessarily be in the query. I think you could probably just put it at the end. I do know most publishers don't usually include trigger warnings. Mm -hmm. They leave it up to the reader or even the author to express that on social media, Goodreads, or just the reviews on Amazon to kind of deal with that. I guess also I don't see any harm if like it's, you know, chapter 20 and something really terrible is about to happen. If at the beginning of chapter 20, you're like trigger warning for this. I think at that point, someone's probably invested enough that, you know, at least it's kind of a fair, I don't know. I, I guess I'm of two minds about it. I, I, I've i had some agent friends say that they were kind of upset by things that they found in their inbox. And I guess just because I've seen my friends mm. upset, I want to protect them. But I can also see how, you know, the way Lizzie suggested it, it's a, the hint is there. So I do think though that like, so, so if you just do a quick Twitter stock, often the agents that have things they have warnings about will talk about those things on Twitter and say, you know, and, and like, they'll say, this is a warning for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, if, and you can kind of figure that out prior to querying and, and it's kind of a helpful way to go. Mm-hmm. There are some that say they don't want it in their wish list, but I wish more actually said it in their wish list. Like, mm-hmm. I know they don't want to, but there probably should be. You can it's always like, do a Twitter advanced search for keywords too, or for the okay. words trigger warning or TW. And I think that can give you an idea. I mean, I know that's a lot of work to personalize, but it's a way that you so can that. find out. Curious on your thoughts about LGBT romance novels. Yeah, they're great. I mean, it's one of the great things about modern romance is we're not just heaving bosoms of ladies and bare chested <laughs> men. We can have various combinations of those ladies, ladies, men, men, non-binary, transgender. I think the marketplace is really opened up. And I especially think that there are some houses that are doing it really, really well. And I think the fact that a lot of romance is finding a new voice in a new home and trade paperback as opposed to mass market has been delightful. Mass market readership is primarily Walmart and the Walmart readership is not always the most risk-taking. But with trade paperbacks and with eBooks, there are many more avenues to explore. And I think we're seeing some really great stories coming out of this space. It used to be back when I was in college to get like any queer romance, I would have to read fan fiction. Now I can just like, you know, go to the store and actually buy one. And it's, I mean, my wallet doesn't appreciate it, but there's only so much Draco Harry Potter you can read. (laughs) I think, you know, as someone that teaches just such a wide range of just kiddos and like, it's like for them, every time they see a book with a queer protagonist, like it is... Like they, they grow, like they're, you know, like they get bigger in their skin. Like it is, it is something really amazing about it. And I think as a teacher who I've taught for twenty years, like actually watching that shift and watching those stories change for twenty somethings, it's been really remarkable. I've really appreciated it. Yeah, I mean, guys, have you heard Hallmark has its first lead gay couple movie yeah. coming out this year? I mean. They're adopting a child, so they're not falling in love. But I am still like Hallmark. If Hallmark can do it, do I it. mean, Hallmark is not cutting edge typically. No, they're not. But they're making a lot of strides this year. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of good progress with the Hallmark this year. So, oh yeah, my. I mean, 
Hallmark movies are my catnip. <laughs> so guys, we have about we have about like between five and ten more minutes. So Jessica, two more questions. Sure. Generally speaking, do you would you recommend that someone writes what they love versus what's marketable and or ba- finding a balance there? And then to add to that, if they have say five different stories and they really love all of them and one of them is more marketable than the other currently, or you think it will be in the next three years, whenever it would be published, what would your recommendation be? I guess I always say, write what you love, just because market trends come and go. What you're passionate about will always be the better book. Also, you have to remember that I know finishing your first book, you feel like, oh my gosh, I have to find the right agent and have to sell it immediately. But with each book you write, you become a better writer. And so writing a book that's not necessarily marketable now doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile endeavor. And you can't predict where things are going to go. I think the strategic thing is pitching a book that feels marketable. If you have several books under your belt and you're like, which one should I go out with? Should I go out with the one I love the most or the one that's most marketable? I think that's a little bit of a harder case just because if it's something you really love, you might regret not going out with it. But at the same time, if you go out with the more marketable one, you might get interest and have an agent say, and what else are you writing? Mm -hmm. And then it could spiral from there. I have a paranormal writer and she loves paranormal. Paranormal, urban fantasy, mysteries. And for a long time, those were a really hard sell. And so we, I talked to her about it. I was like, you know what? This is a really hard sell, but this is where your heart is. So I'm not going to say don't write it, but let's brainstorm some ideas about what you want to do. And so long story short, she has a few titles now that when the market changes, will have the ability to, to jump on it. So market marketability is such a buzzy word. And it's so hard when people are saying, we definitely really want equestrian YAs with like My Little Pony meets the Carpenters. I don't know what that would be, but what if someone said that's what they wanted? And so your instinct is like, I can write My Little Ponies with like brother and sister dynamics where one dies of anorexia. And so you're like, I can do that. But at the same time, that's not going to be a story that might be relevant in a year's time when you finally get around to sending that book on query. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I've just been struggling with that one over and over because I have the book I wrote and I'm like, how long do I wait before I really just give up? And then should I just write something different? And so this is a, that was a great answer. Thank you. Well, we talked the other night, I think, about sometimes sometimes your stories of the book that you love doesn't hit traditionally, traditionally, but you might find another spot for it. And when you find the spot for it, that's when things like swoosh up in a way that's really interesting. My grandmother, before she died, gave me this story about the running of this, like one of the Christmas, the Christmas box or something by Evans. And it was like, or is it Evans, Richard, whatever, but, but it was all about how he just like loved this book so much and known to publish it. And so he just bought a bunch and people kept buying and buying and buying and buying. And then it was on the New York times bestselling list. And it was like 
basically a book that was out of publisher, but he believed in it. And then it was kind of a great story about publishing a book that had the meaning to this man. So like, I do think like, we talk a lot about traditional publishing. That's what we do. But if you can make $50,000 a month self-publishing your book, you know, people do. And people do, right. Then, then that's where your market is just, your readers are there and you just go there and then your next book can be traditionally published. So, so like, I just don't want to like pigeonhole, like if you have something you love and you can't find a place for it, put it somewhere else and see if you can find people that love it. But I think if your dream is to be traditionally published, try that first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then you don't have to be a marketer. You don't have to do everything. And of course, we know that's kind of an easier way to just, just distribute your, 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 your baby. So who is our next person, Jessica? So my question is, new adult seems to be a space that is very much centered on romance. But Lizzie, do you think that there is space in new adult for more, uh, for different subgenres like a fantasy adventure with a romantic subplot? Do you think that could be a space, there could be a space in new adult for that? I think new adult is tricky thing to talk about because new adult itself is a term I think publishers and writers use more than actual readers use. There aren't the same shelf space for new adult as there is in the physical bookstore as there is online. And I think a lot of times when we say new adult, they end up being classified as something else by the time they go to print. A lot of them either get classified in just the romance genre, some of them get classified in the YA genre, some of them age down, some of them age up, some of them end up going in a completely different direction and might end up being more women's fiction or more just commercial fiction. So when we're saying new adult, it's tricky because there's, it's, it's almost, it's almost like a Venn diagram of genres and it's less of a genre on its own. So instead of pitching a new adult as a new adult fantasy, I would say I would prefer it just being pitched as a fantasy coming of age story, which I think would solve your issue of where is, is there a place in this world for a new adult that also has magical elements? I think there is. If you look at The Magicians, I'm pretty sure The Magicians is a new adult magic book. Right. But I don't think anyone would call the magician's new adult, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Lizzie, it's so interesting to me that, so I remember, I believe we were in blog time then. So everyone had a blog when this was happening. Were you at St. Martin's when JJ was working on new adult, I believe at Griffin, and it was brand new and everyone was very excited about it. And then Mm -hmm. it seemed ironic that about when she left, everyone was finally like, oh yeah, new adult. And then And now everyone still talks about it. Like, how did New Adult become this thing that's captured so much of our imagination? And did you see anything in-house that can shed some light on? Was that like, okay, guys, we're going to make everyone know about this thing. They're all going to remember 10 years later. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So JJ actually trained me in my job when I came on as an editorial assistant. She showed me the ropes. Her cubicle was right next to mine. She pretty much taught me how to how to do things. And so I remember when, I think it was, 
Uh, and this was um, Sarah J. Jones. Um, yes, Sarah if you, J. Jones. Yeah, and and you know she had these beautiful drawings of her plush seal, and mm-hmm. um, seemed to have a great sense of style. And I remember her talking about her boss being like, "Okay, new result. Yeah. It's going to happen." So St. Martin's Press brought on a new big shot editor, and he basically looked at the Sweet Valley High series. Do you remember those? Yeah, Sweet Valley High books, and was like, "What if we like aged them up?" And it's like, well, what would we call them? Because they wouldn't be young adult. And he was like, they'll be new adult. <laughs> and it was just this push to to incorporate these books that fit this kind of college age. They were a little bit more risque than young adult because at the time, young adult wasn't dealing with a lot of sex, drugs, deep issues. I mean, you had your real shining young adult authors who wrote these literary works. I think of like Speak, for example, that really did deal with harder issues. But for the most part, young adult at that time was still meant for the shelves next to the picture books. And they they were, kids don't have sex, kids don't really drink, kids don't really cuss. They were clean. And so the idea was, let's show college age students and we'll be a little more risque. We'll have a little bit more sex. We'll have a little bit more adult behavior, but it will still be these coming of age stories and these characters grappling with what it means to be growing up in a world. Mm -hmm. And so that's what new adult came from. Ultimately, I think by the time both JJ and her boss left St. Martin's, we were all talking about new adult And that's when the digital space really started to explode, where these stories that didn't necessarily find their place in the traditional bookshelves, like Colleen Hoover. And like, I remember one my boss did called Bad Romeo, and it was just delicious. It was so good. And so these books were coming out in the digital space. And so publishers were trying to incorporate them into the print space as well. And what ultimately they found is booksellers didn't really have the room for them. And so they kind of faded into other genres. But when you say new adult, to me, that just means you're writing a coming of age story, a story that grapples with someone who's younger, but also is dealing with more mature themes. Mm. I don't necessarily Mm. know if very many people are classifying the things they sell as new adult the same way as they did 10 years ago. But it's still impressive. I mean, the idea of like coming up with this idea and all these years later, we're like, oh yeah, we know what that is. Mm -hmm. And I do think we've seen it like in television, like there's euphoria, which is a bunch of high school kids just in really hard situations. And then there's like, you know, all of the great Netflix team movies that are out right now that adults are watching. So I think there's so much crossover and it's really an interesting Peace. So Lizzie, this is my final question to you. What's your number one tip for writers? I think my number one tip for writers is to not get discouraged if you've hit the end of your book and it's not going as quickly as you want it to. You always hear these stories about these great authors who have manuscripts upon manuscripts upon manuscripts in their closets until they finally found the right manuscript that was going to knock the socks off of the world. And it sounds cliche, but it's very true. It goes back to what I said, when you write, you're building your craft and you're getting better at what you do. So never view writing as a disappointment or as something that you've lost by doing. It might not, your first book not might not be the book that makes you James Patterson, 
but your first book is a starting step and it's your first step in going on a journey that most people can never get to. Like think of how many people never get to the point where they've actually finished a book. So don't get discouraged. Keep on doing what you're doing. Plug away at it. And just, you know, the little engine that could was something our, my mother told me all the time. And I'm going to tell you, if you think you can, eventually you'll get up that mountain. You might have closets and closets full of wear bear shifter romances that never went anywhere. But you know what? You'll be a better author because of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and also I want to just say, I mean, I know we say this all the time, but we interact with you guys a lot. We know what you're thinking about, how much you're trying, all of the ways that you're always trying to be the very best version of the writer that you can be. You are so far ahead of the query inbox on average. My goodness, if you could see what is in there, the people who aren't even trying. You know, I know it's so easy to imagine everyone is trying as hard as you are. They're not. (laughs) we're continually impressed by the work you're putting in the talent that you have the way that you show up my goodness you're here at the end of an exhausting week that's been so long for everybody and you're here getting this information and asking wonderful questions and being nice to each other and being so professional and so cool you know we know that you are the top at least five percent maybe under that so I hope you know that too and we'll take that as the encouragement that it's meant to be that's right thank you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 you know, and we're just so, we're so pleased to have you, Lizzie, you're amazing. Such a pleasure. Everyone, Lizzie is available for meetings. She's on faculty now again, and we're so excited to have her. As you can see, she's a genius. She's nice. She can help you with your book. I typically don't even make people cry. So like, <laughs> I would say I'm like up there. <laughs> Just to clarify, people on our staff generally do not make, make people, people cry. cry. We've chosen yeah. everyone for their kindness and brilliance and ability to come up with feedback on the spot. But as you can see, Lizzie has all three. Yeah, we're seeing so much love for you in the text chat, Lizzie. Thank you so much again for doing this. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.